or for you. Be a good person. Never let them see you sweat. You can't, you know, just do it. You can do it. Live like there's no tomorrow. Personal rules. Still law. Standards. Commands. And we strive to attain that standard, jumping over this bar to try to earn our respectability or acceptability, our standing before God and other people by our performance. This is what Paul calls our works. And then we live our whole lives building and maintaining and protecting this sort of record of our works, things that we believe that make us right, righteous. This is what Paul lays before us. This is the thing that we start to tell ourselves, and sometimes it's barely in a detectable sort of way. These are sort of the the spoken or unspoken laws that we live by and then strive to produce works according to that law. So you say, what are you talking about? What does this look like? I'm not sure I live this way. Well, some of us live our lives and arrange our time according to what you might call a law of beauty. The law goes like this, I'm not acceptable unless I'm physically attractive. And so we labor and labor and labor to produce what you might call works of excessive gym time or works of cosmetic overspending or mirror gazing. Some of us live according to what you might call a law of success. I'm I'm nobody. I'm nothing unless I get that job or knock that project out of the park or get into that school. And so vacation-less overwork or just simply living with deep anxiety about school admissions becomes our works of the law. Or here's another law that we live by sometimes uh, for those of us that have children, the law of well-behaved children, which sort of tells us, we believe it deeply, that I'm superior to parents, more blessed by God perhaps, superior to parents who can't seem to get their kids under control like I can. And so we engage in what you might call the works of public yelling to control our children or the works of secret embarrassment for the kids you've been dealt. There's a law of correct theology that some of us abide by and it sounds something like this. God approves of you in proportion to your theological knowledge and accuracy. And so then we produce, therefore, works of deception and lying about how much time you spend with God, or perhaps diligence in prayer, not because you love God, but because you need to keep this law. Or you boast about your knowledge of Bible trivia in the most obnoxious sort of way in your small group, and you're always sure to point out when other people make mistakes. There's a law of relationships I'm not lovable unless I'm married or unless I have a significant other or unless people think I'm tough or attractive or funny. There's a law of laid-backness. Everyone in D.C. is so uptight, why can't they be more chill like me? 
a law of compassion that God only really loves you if you're laying down your life for every work of activism and sacrificial care for those that are less well off than you. A law of sacrificiality, a law of productivity, laws upon laws upon laws that we erect in our hearts and then works upon works upon works that we perform in order to meet them. There's one more law I want to point out, and that's the one that Paul specifically addresses at the beginning of this passage. And we might call it the law of cultural conformity. My people do the right things the right way, and so should you and your people, goes this law. What this passage tells us is that we can fall into a sort of uh, ethnocentrism, a critique of people of other cultures based upon our own, uh, treating, in fact, what is cultural as that which is moral. It's actually, you might say, a form of racism insofar as it simply distances ourselves and separates ourselves, to use the way that Paul describes what the Apostle Peter did to the Gentiles, from those we believe are culturally off base. You see, this tendency of our hearts, living according to these laws and works, the law of cultural conformity can be more subtle than we think it was for Peter. For him, it wasn't exposed in a racial sensitivity quiz. It was exposed in his dinner guest list. And just like with Peter, you don't even have to utter a word. But in your relationships, all of us communicate a theology of divine acceptance. And so we quietly demand culturally conformity from others. You're wrong in the way that you do that. You ought to be more like this, to be approved, to be accepted by me or in this church community or in society. You see it in the way in which we make split-second decisions about a person based upon what they're wearing, just upon what they're wearing, whether if it's a hoodie or a hijab or if it's a polo and khakis. The way we're at a restaurant or on the, mer- uh, or on the metro and, the, and, and we sort of get quietly annoyed when we think a person or a group is being too loud and we take note of their ethnicity. Uh, the way that we form opinions about a person's intellect based upon their accent, uh, whether that's regional or foreign. I don't accept you unless you talk right. I don't accept you unless you dress right or eat right, or act right. And most of the time, of course, we don't even know that we're doing this because it's so hardwired into our minds and our hearts. We take what's actually a cultural thing and we treat it like it's a moral thing. You need to conform to the way that I think things ought to be done. You need to be less Latin American and and more white. You need to be less Southern and more Asian. You need to be less Asian and and more African. You need to be less African and more African-American. You need to be less you, and you need to become more me. As we said in the beginning, 
Meals are intimate things. You can tell what you believe about justification by whom you eat with. Isn't this what the apostle is telling us? You can tell what you believe about your acceptance before God by whom you accept at your tables. So who's at your table? Who do you eat with? Or who are you drawing back from? Or what customs are you forcing other people to follow? Don't you see, friends, this is what this part of Galatians is telling us in no uncertain terms. Cross-cultural fellowship, relationships, are one of the preeminent proofs and fruit of our justification by faith in Christ. But we fall short. And we live according to these laws, whether if it's the law of cultural conformity or the law of beauty, the law of success, the law of compassion, whatever it might be. We tend to live in a courtroom in our hearts with a jury and a judge in our heads. Do you hear them? We try to earn approval. We try to earn a righteous verdict. What does it sound like? Beautiful, righteous, lovable, important, valuable, worthy. Earning these verdicts at least striving hard to through the things that we are and the things that we do. And what's going on is that we're building our lives on something besides Jesus in which we find our righteousness, our rightness, to give us a sense of worth, identity, and security. So consider your life. How are you doing this? In what ways do you see yourself seeking to be justified by works of the law? Seeking to be accepted by God, accepted by yourself, the reflection in the mirror when you gaze at yourself, and by those around you, ways that you're seeking to be approved, loved, deemed worthy of affection, of respect, because of the things that you are and the things that you do. If we listen to the desires of our hearts, maybe especially the fears of our hearts, we start to hear it and see it. That I really believe that I am justified by the things that I do. And someone says, well, what's the big deal? So maybe that's true, but what's wrong with that? What's, what's wrong with it? First of all, you can hear it in the examples that I was given. It just makes us into anxious, self-righteous people to live in this sort of way. It even sort of dehumanizes us. It causes us to live in, in, in bondage emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. It's no wonder in the next chapter of Galatians, Paul concludes that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. I mean, do you feel that curse today, dear friends? Don't you want to get free? But secondly, we're reminded that living according to the works of the law and being justified by them, it doesn't work. It's why Paul says clearly in the last part of verse 16, by works of the law, no one will actually be justified. 
If you try to earn your own acceptance by God, you'll never be declared righteous. No one can get heaven or get lasting happiness that way. And why? Well, let's be honest, because we just don't measure up. We strive, but we don't actually succeed at completely and perfectly fulfilling these laws. Not to God's standard of love. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus reminds us that God cares not only about our outward surface behavior, but also the desires and motives of our heart that no one can see but God. I mean, shoot. Right? Don't just love, but love with all your heart. Don't just forgive. Forgive with your heart. An unspoken, hateful word or thought is murder in the heart. Lustful, groping eyes is adultery of the heart. These are the things that Jesus tells us and he nails us. You might try to get away with surface behavior alone, but God cares about the why and the how, and so should we. But it's not just God's standard of love that condemns us, it's our own. I mean, we don't even live up to our own standards. Uh, you, you can't even keep your own little laws perfectly or consistently. We talked about this two weeks ago. Do my best to be kind to my neighbor. Do my best always to be kind. I, I, I can't do that. Sometimes I fake my best so that I don't have to do my best. Be tolerant of the people that you disagree with. Okay, but not with those people. We can't follow our own rules acceptably, let alone the moral law of God. Friends, we stand condemned. We need a better way to be justified. The good news of God's gift of grace is that he gives us a better way. There is a better way. And Paul says that that is to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. Again, in verse 16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Which means that if you embrace Jesus, God essentially transfers Jesus' moral record. All the things that he did right under the law of God as a human being when he walked this planet for 33 years, all the things that Jesus did right Loving people perfectly, listening perfectly, being patient perfectly, sacrificing of of himself perfectly, worshiping God perfectly, loving neighbor perfectly, is now transferred to your moral account, and God treats you as if you had done everything that Jesus did. It's what the theologians of old used to call an imputation of Christ's righteousness to you. He credits it to your account. This is the joy and the mystery of the gospel. And so you're called here not to trust in your own works to define you and to rescue you, but to trust rather in Jesus' works, which can rescue you to the bitter end. Let me explain this idea of being justified by faith in Christ by painting for you a picture, a little scene based upon the imagery and the words found in this passage. And here it is. You're standing in the midst 
of a massive courtroom. You're in a courtroom, and it's actually the court of heaven. And God is the judge. And this feeling of dread suddenly comes over you when you realize that you're the defendant. You're on trial. And here they bring out as evidence before the court your lifelong moral record. How have you been loving? You're told the judge is about to sort of run through all your personal details, everything you're you've ever done, everything you've ever failed to do, everything you've ever thought or desired, every motive that's driven you, everything's about to be laid bare before the court of heaven. You just want to throw up. You're so nervous, if you can imagine it. And then the judge starts reading. You hold your breath. Well, it looks like you've loved every person you've ever encountered. Hmm. And you've never held a selfish thought or motive. Not ever. No trace of bitterness in your heart. And you have been consistently grateful to God at all times. No grumbling. No humility. I mean, only humility. Only gratitude. And you're listening to this. Not sure what to make of it, but you know yourself well enough that you feel this need to just interrupt the judge. You're so confused and you begin to stammer. You've got to have the wrong person here. It's not my record. You must have the wrong person because I'm a selfish sinner. I've lied about that my whole life, but now standing in this courtroom with nothing to lose, I know I'm selfish. I know I'm a sinner. I know my heart, and, and you know it even better than I do, that I'm reluctant to make sacrifices even in the smallest of ways. And that my kids, most of the time, I, I treat them like they're an inconvenience getting in the way of my otherwise inconvenience-free life. And I'm so envious and competitive that more often than I want to admit, I, I just want other churches to fail, to make me feel good about myself. It's hideous. I mean, I don't know, whatever, whatever you've read just now, that's, that's not my story, that's not my heart, that's not my record, it can't be. Is this kind of a, a joke? And then at that point, the judge looks up at you and says above his glasses, well, your name is Jesus, isn't it? The crack of the gavel echoes in the room as the verdict is read. And you hear the judge's voice thunder and thunder with joy. Not guilty. The defendant is righteous, perfectly righteous. You are righteous in my sight, accepted, beloved, mine.
Dear friends, there is another way to be justified. Not by works of the law. You can be fully accepted by God as righteous in his sight, not by your works, but by the works of Jesus where his perfect record counts as our own record of righteousness, where we get credit for everything that he did, where his name is the banner over us in the courts and the family of God, where God begins to treat us as if we were Jesus himself, pouring out all of his own love and favor and blessing and kindness and honor and glory upon us, not because we deserve it, And not because we earned it, but because Jesus did. And he gives it to us freely as a gift because he loves us. And all we need to do, the apostle tells us, is to believe in him, to put our faith in him, to embrace him with all humility, with all love, and with all joy, to choose Jesus as our substitute before God, as our unique representative in the court of heaven, to say it's either him or it's me. Somebody's got to stand in that defendant's box when it's my turn. And if it's me, then I'm screwed. But if it's him, I'm saved. I'm loved. So I choose him. I choose him. Do you choose him? Paul calls this an expression of the grace of God. Grace because it's a gift. It's a gift to know that God can't accept you or love you any more than he already does if you are justified in Christ. And there's nothing that you can do to change that verdict. Nothing you can do now to disqualify yourself from the love of Christ, to disqualify yourself from that state of righteousness and acceptance. Can you just imagine the kind of security that you can begin to live with? Do you see how this just changes everything. And so, in conclusion, there are two ways to live, right? Two ways to attain, maintain a righteous standing before God and the world. One doesn't work, the other does. The choice is yours, ours, all of us. And again, even to those of you who are professing Christians, remember that the Apostle Paul is writing primarily to Christians in the church of Galatia. He's not saying you've never heard this. He's saying you have not lived in line with this. You're not bringing your life, your actual life, your actual thoughts, your actual priorities, your actual spending of money, of energy, of heart and life in conformity with the reality of the gift of God's grace. Will you, dear friends, today inch your way one one inch of faith in that direction? Or if all of this is new to you, you haven't yet embraced Jesus, will you today grab a hold of the one who offers to be your one true, free, 
source of righteous standing and acceptance of love before God? Will you say yes to him today? As my friend Scott Saul has recently put it, what if not our financial net worth, reputation, career successes, body type, religious devotion, or moral goodness, but the smile of Jesus finally became our source of validation? What if the smile of Jesus and not the works of the law became our source of validation, justification? That question would change our lives. Dear friends, in what, by what, in whom do you seek to be justified? Here's a gift for you. In Christ, you are justified. Put your faith in him. Renew your faith in him. Receive his gift. Let's pray. We ask that you would open wide our hearts that we would be melted by your love, that we would be humbled to receive what we cannot achieve ourselves, your acceptance, your verdict, O oh God. Give us Jesus. Thank God you have given him to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.